Welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and a medical oncologist, and I have interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. I feel very, very privileged and honored to host Dr. Ralph Weichselbaum on today's podcast. Dr. Weichselbaum is the Daniel K. Ludwig Distinguished Service Professor of Radiation and Cellular Oncology and the Chair of the Department of Radiation and Cellular Oncology at the University of Chicago, one of the largest NCI comprehensive designated cancer centers in the country. He has been doing this for over three decades and has had a tremendous impact on patients' lives, on mentoring students, fellows, residents, and many healthcare professionals. I had the opportunity to meet Ralph when I was a faculty as an associate professor at the University of Chicago. And I, I, as you will hear, I tell him this, the first thing that struck me, aside from the fact he's a tall guy, so he's almost my, we are same height, is that he is a no BS kind of guy. He just literally says it like it is. And I loved learning from him. I felt I could learn from him. Just listening in the same, you sit in a room around the table with few folks and just pay attention to every single word that Ralph says. And I promise you, you will learn a lot. I really wanted to host him to talk about, well, before I tell you why, frankly, I mean, there's so much to tell you about Ralph, the man, the scientist, the academician, the mentor. I mean, he has done so much for radiation oncology. Uh, he is a member of the Institute of Medicine, of the National Academy of Sciences. He, he won the largest prestigious award, the highest award from the American Society of Clinical Oncology, the Karnofsky Award, I think either a year or a couple of years ago, which was really amazing. He is very interested in the treatment of metastatic disease, as well as specifically, specifically focus on uh, oligometastases. When I think about Ralph, I think, well, let me step back. Um, as a medical oncologist, you do get exposed to radiation oncology, obviously, a lot. And I can tell you that there are very few people in radiation oncology who have had the same influence and impact that somebody like Ralph had. When he says something, you better listen, because he knows what he's talking about. He understands what he's talking about, but he also understands the implication of what he is saying. So it's really fascinating. And there are very few people that I can genuinely say have had such an impact on everything radiation oncology compared to Ralph. Ralph, uh, I think if Wikipedia is correct, and he does have a Wikipedia page, I did challenge him that about that. He said there are some errors. Hopefully what I'm reading here from Wikipedia has no errors, but he did get his medical degree from University of Illinois in Chicago and then had a research fellowship in surgical oncology. He finished his residency at this place called Harvard Medical School, and then a fellowship uh, with John Little at the Harvard School of Public Health. After completing his uh, fellowship, he joined the faculty at Harvard Medical School um, and stayed there until, uh, I believe, the uh, mid-'80s, and then he, uh, I think he went to the University of Chicago, where he is currently a professor. Ralph, if you're listening to this and I messed up, then we got to correct your Wikipedia page. But uh, what I wanted to talk to Ralph about is radiation oncology as a discipline. What are the changes that have occurred in radiation oncology? Uh, 
what is going on in that field, what really strikes him as an important thing that is happening in the next few years in terms of research, what are the, fall, the pitfalls about conducting clinical trials in this field. We'll talk about proton therapy. I'm sure you are all excited to hear about proton therapy uh, from Ralph. Uh, we talk about the challenges that face academic physicians, junior faculty, uh, the funding for research. All of these things are ongoing. Um, and, and really, uh, I um, listening to him, I feel I was I felt I was listening to a, a history book. So uh, hopefully he will listen to me and um, and realizes um, that he should really write a book about what's uh, going on. The only thing is, I believe, I think he can write more papers. Frankly, I was very disappointed in the fact he only has uh, a little bit uh, over 800 uh, publications. Um, uh, so that's really not, not very good. And I think he could have a few more. So Ralph, really uh, get going and write a few more papers. 800 is not enough. All right, folks, without further ado, before I air the episode, by the way, you need to uh, visit my website, www.chadinabhan.com. You need to subscribe to the podcast. You can watch it on YouTube, Chadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. Uh, subscribe to it, like it. And don't forget to, uh, again, let me know how I am doing. Without further ado, Dr. Ralph Weizelbaum from the University of Chicago, exclusively on Healthcare Unfiltered Podcast. I am very excited. Uh, this is, uh, uh, Ralph will know that uh, I feel like a kid in a candy store at this point because uh, he thinks he's going to be with me for an hour. I don't know if I'm going to let him go because it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, I have been waiting for this episode for a while. It took a while to schedule. I've had a lot of requests. Ralph, there was a lot of requests, by the way, from listeners. They want you on because uh, the title of my podcast, as you know, is Healthcare Unfiltered. And unanimously, apparently, you are the most unfiltered physician on social media. How did you get this title and introduce yourself to listeners? Okay, well, I'm Ralph Weitzelbaum. I'm a radiation oncologist at the University of Chicago. I've been here for 38 years. Um, I run the department, uh, or it runs me, and I uh, have a big laboratory. And in the past, say, 10 years, my patient care responsibilities have been decreased, but I still am pretty active with the younger doctors in the clinic and do chart rounds and so forth. So how did you become unfiltered physician? What's going on? Well, because I think um, there, you know, there's a lot of nonsense uh, in general and a lot of, I, it seems to focus in healthcare more, more, both in terms of what people demand uh, for evidence and also um, uh, our own biases that filter into patient care. And of course, in cancer, it can be particularly rewarding or particularly tragic, but the more data we have, obviously, the better. And I'm interested in how people make decisions. So that's, that, that's been a longstanding interest. You know, I mean, Ralph, I've, I've known you when I was at the University of Chicago. Obviously, I'm, I'm really a big fan. We sat on a couple of committees where I, I got to know you because you, you say it like it is. I would say the first thing that, um, that struck me on a couple of meetings that we were in together, that you are a no BS kind of guy, honestly. Um, but, but at some point, you had to play the political game, I believe, when you're a junior faculty and so on. And then you, you get to a point where, you know, this is how it is, and, and, and you don't care, and people have to get 
how do you how are you seeing the academic world for the younger generation of physicians today? I think it's much more difficult, excuse me, than when I started. I think uh, for uh, academic physicians, the, first of all, the training is so long. I mean, in internal medicine, it's for three years of a residency and two or three years of fellowship. And if you have a lab, maybe a PhD. So you're in the mid thirties by the time you start earning any money. And then um, in some academic centers, I think it's not particularly remunerative depending on the specialty. So that makes it difficult. And then it's sort of like you do all this training. And then if, if you're on a tenure track, which I actually try not to use in our department, it's you've got five or six years to, to make it or not. And it's really, it seems to me that too much pressure to put on any investigator because, you know, it's, it's whether it's a clinical trial or whether it's a laboratory study, um, it can go wrong. And even if you've got two or three, you can have a very talented individual and it can go badly. So what I've tried to do in our department is uh, we have a, the basic scientist on a tenure track, and uh, but for the physicists and the physicians, they're on what a clinical track. I get the distinctions mixed up myself. And so I think we have one chance when you're a professor to move them over. It's more prestigious, but fundamentally no physician is going to work for their tenure salary. I think it's it's more prestigious, but why take a chance on getting fired? And so it, it gives the younger people a longer lead time to perform, whether it's clin to do clinical trials or write clinical papers or work in the lab. The other thing is I've tried to get enough money in the department to support the physician scientists, um, whether or not they get a grant. I think the grant getting business, when I started, it was actually not so long time ago, one in three, and then it went to one in five, and now it's one in 10 or less. And again, this is ridiculous uh, in the sense that it's like throwing darts at a dartboard, number one. And number two, it's... Um, uh, the review of the grants has become almost a lottery. So the NIH, it's hard for them to find reviewers. Um, it takes a long time. Uh, they're very, these are very specialized things and, and there's a certain amount of politics in it. So it seems to me, especially in the specialty like radiation oncology, where we don't have a lot of physician scientists, that if I could find somebody with talent, I need to support them longitudinally without the pressure of, uh, you know, there's enough negative things in, uh, in, in, in life and in medicine. You know, if somebody doesn't get a grant, they don't need me, they don't need me to tell them that they screwed up. I mean, you just have to support them. So, so far it's been, I think, pretty successful, um, uh, you know, by, I judge by the number of professors that have come through the department and number of chairmen and people have gone on to successful investigative careers. So, so I think, I think that's key. I think, uh, but I, you know, I don't know, it seems to me it's more, I wouldn't say punitive internal medicine. I mean, it's a much bigger portfolio with a much better established physician scientist track, but it still seems to me that this is a tough, it, it's too tough. And what I'm afraid of is, that we're going to get talented young people who go uh, to the drug companies who already own everything anyway, and it's you know really going to diminish the quality of science and oncology. But but you would want to, I mean, you want to have the drug companies having some talent. Oh, of course, yeah. I, I think yeah. Oh, I'm I'm not anti-drug company in the sense that I think they're evil. I mean, they're companies, right? And you, obviously, they make the drugs, they distribute the drugs. 
with all that goes with it. I, I and but I think again when I started, the drug companies didn't have the level of uh, of scientific talent they have now. It's not just the drug companies. You look at papers in Science or Nature. A lot of them come from Genentech or they come from Novartis. I mean, these are smart, talented, gifted people. So uh, and of course. People seem to want to do academics, and it's you know it's a broad brush. But nonetheless, I think for a physician scientist, we should have an easier, shorter, more supportive path in general. No, oh, agreed. So, so what's your lab focused on nowadays? And maybe you know you've you've done this obviously through three decades. Yeah. You're the perfect person to talk about the evolution about radiotherapy and maybe how your lab pivoted as things changed. What are you focused currently on and what you, did you start in the beginning? So, so I started looking at uh, DNA repair in human tumor cells. And if I was very fortunate, I worked with a, a man, Samuel Hellman, who was the head at Harvard, and who actually became the dean at Chicago, and John B. Little, who uh, had a lab at the Harvard School of Public Health. So I really got mentored by two people. And then when I moved to Chicago, I continued this and really got into how genes are turned on and off by radiation and had a, a paradigm where we cloned radioinducible promoters upstream of TNF, it turned out, and put this into an adenovirus and commercialized it. So the idea here was you could turn genes on with radiation, which has two advantages. One, it gets in and, and can be... Uh, spatially controlled and temporally controlled. And two, uh, it, it has a cytotoxic effect on its own. And it's, it shows you I'm probably the only person who had brought a company public and didn't make any money with Gendek. And they, we had great data in soft tissue sarcomas. I, I, I bet this would have gotten approved at least to avoid amputation, but they picked pancreatic cancer. And I told them it fails distantly. Don't do it. They did it anyway, and the company went down the tubes, and so did the thing. But at least it was scientifically interesting, right? And then I started, this gave me a little background in immunology, and I was, um, I always say a lot, some bad things happened to me I didn't deserve. A good thing happened to me that I didn't deserve was I got to be a Ludwig professor. So I got some money from my lab. This was always a priority for me because I was bad at writing grants. I mean, I got them, and if it continuous funding for 40 years, but if I write six, I get one funded. It's just brutal, right? And so this gave me some stable uh, funding over, over a long period of time. And so I was able to get into the interaction of radiation and immunology and radiation and immunotherapy. I was fortunate to work with a guy at, who was at Chicago, Yang Jin Fu, who's really a brilliant person, taught me a lot. I'm so grateful to this person. He, he unfortunately moved to UCT Southwestern and back to Tsinghua, I think, in China. And But I still talk to him and collaborate with him. And so, so I've continued this. And then um, most re recently, I've worked with a scientist at Chicago, Winbin Lin, who's a nano guy. So I always thought nano was nonsense. However, uh, he, he has these uh, things, he, they call them MOFs, metallo-organic frameworks. So it, it, they're made of rare earth metals like hafnium. So if you radiate them, they give off uh, many secondary electrons and you can put things in them like immunostimulants or chemotherapy, it's, it's very cool. And then also I've been fortunate to work with a scientist, Chuan He, H-E, 
And he's probably our most famous scientist. And he works on RNA methylation. And working with Schwann, we've been able to show that if you, so uh, there's methylases called uh, writers of RNA, or he calls writers, erasers that are demethylases and um, effectors. Uh, and by blocking these effectors, we've shown it in general, you can increase the immune response. And he's been making drugs. Uh, so uh, it, there's other uh, effectors. If you block them, you actually increase the immune response, you increase radio sensitivity, increase sensitivity to PD-1. So it's been very exciting. The only downside, it's taken us three years to get a paper out. We had one in Nature a couple of years ago. But you know, th that's another thing. If you're, if you're a beginning scientist, the amount of data now you need to get a paper into a high-profile journal is just astounding. I think there were more paper, more data in the supplement of my last paper than in my first twenty. Yeah, it's really and, uh, and there's a lot of this. And yeah, I wanna, you know, I know we jumped right away into into talking about career and so on. I just want to make sure for listeners who don't know you, you've been actually very humble in how you introduce yourself. Um, uh, if you are listening to this show, Ralph just said, I'm a radiation oncologist at the University of Chicago. You're a little bit more than that. And I want to I wanna maybe step back and just, um, and just make sure folks are aware um, uh, of, uh, of who you are in addition to mentoring and so on. You've, um, you've authored a lot of books, you've won a lot of awards, and you are in the National Academy of Science. You actually have a Wikipedia page. Did you know that? I didn't. I, I don't know how it got in there. I, I don't know how to get in. Some of it's not quite right. I should go fix it. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, once you have a Wikipedia page, you're there. I mean, that's basically that is way more important than a nature paper. Around. Yeah, right. You know, I'm afraid you're right these days. I mean, you know, there's nature and science and there's, for example, the number of likes and retweets, as you know, this is now yes. way more important. I'm just yes. sure, you know, let's get our priorities straight. You, you know, you bring you bring up a lot of interesting things in terms of how um, how your lab uh, pivoted uh, as things have changed and, and the difficulties of what you're doing. How do you feel you've been able to maintain a, an administrative role, clinical role, and a basic science role? Um, it's very difficult to have these three. Do you feel that for young generations right now, they need to pick one path or the other because I, I think you need to start on one. I think for anybody who's trained as a physician who's been through a residency, it's a mistake to give up your clinical skills, whatever you're, whatever you're doing. And the more technical and repetitive it is, the harder it is to do. Um, uh, you know, I, I, surgeons have the hardest time because they're it's really a manual skill. Even in radiotherapy, if you do a lot of brachytherapy, it's a technical manual skill. So I think probably you have to start with one or the other. But I think it's a mistake to give them up. And the, the administration is mostly common sense um, and uh, sort of bobbing and weaving. And uh, that I've matured over the years. I, you know, you, you, I would have been a fool not to learn something because you start to make all these mistakes. And I think it's really mostly dealing with people. Again, what's really changed is, I, is the to the extent that money's involved in everything. Academics has become a big, in general, is a big money, um, high pressure. So, so we're caught between, say, the administration, the dean, and the physicians who want to get paid. And how do you keep labs going, pay the doctors, and make the dean happy and make enough money? 
And um, it, 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 that part is tricky and actually is the most anxiety provoking for me because you really can't control it. I mean, you know. Yeah, yeah. No, no, it's you can't control it. At the same time, you have the mission. I mean, as the chair and as the leader, you want to you mentor new faculty and new right. folks who are coming in and you know the challenges and you can only sugarcoat things so much. And I know you don't sugarcoat, you just say- Yeah, like, well, it's, although, you know, it's important not to be cruel. I mean, I've seen people be really uh, not nice. I, I guess on a podcast, I mean, you know, there's no reason for that. I, and, you know, sometimes you try, I, or I try not to just jump into it and say, but after a minute or two, you know, it's obvious. I mean, I would want, you know, I always say in the lab, uh, if you or, or somebody, one of the junior faculty gives me a clinical paper, you better hear it from me than from the nasty reviewers because you're going to hear it, right? Know it before you send it in. I think the hardest thing, and it hasn't happened to me too much, if a faculty is really screwing up uh, or if they're having problems, that's a hard, that's the hardest thing to deal with. Yeah. I think. yeah. But that's really out of your control. So I want to, I want to, I thought what we would talk about a little bit more, now that we've talked about a little bit uh, uh, challenges in academia and so on, the progress in radiation oncology. Um, I mean, I'll say as somebody who had seen patients for 20 years, and although my focus was a little bit more on lymphoid malignancies and lymphomas, I had a little bit of um, prostate uh, cancer uh, presence as well. And in prostate cancer, there was a lot of application for radiation oncology, and it was really the opposite for lymphoma, you know, um, in terms of the applicability yes. of radiation therapy. But in terms of in terms of progress, as we talk about radiation therapy, um, take us maybe through a journey into when you started, how are things are, and maybe where are these the milestones that occurred that really made monumental right. changes. And then I want to try to, once we get into the more sophisticated approaches, maybe go into through pros and cons, as well as the trials or the lack of thereof that led to their use in clinical practice and clinical care. Sure. So I would say, and I want to talk about metastatic disease. So I'm an outlier in that I think that's a frontier for radiation oncology, but let me give you a more traditional answer and maybe use prostate as an example. So when I started, you know, there was no PSA, there was not really, this, there were primitive CT scans, no MRI. So prostate cancer was picked up by digital rectal exam where men had BPH and they had chips and they, you, you had chips from a, from a TURP. And so we used to treat them, so mostly men had operations so they got put on hormones. And in the 70s, a guy, Malcolm Bagshaw at Stanford, started treating uh, prostate cancer with external radiation. And, uh, and, um, and this sort of competed with Patrick Walsh at Hopkins, who wanted to do nerve-sparing surgery, who was a dominant person in the field. So, so the imaging improved, the method of delivery improved with intensity-modulated radiotherapy, and a number of trials um, with dose escalation and or brachytherapy, which if your listeners don't know, is putting radioactive seeds into the prostate. So this, um, th this gave good results. It's not, neither one of these treatments is completely free. And it leads to, uh, well, who do you treat? Well, it's coming out, of course, that maybe you don't have to treat men who uh, with low grade that they can be surveilled. And then what do you do for higher grade lesions? So 
so I must be 20 years ago, we started combining radiation with hormone ablation with uh, Lupron, uh, for example. And then and this seemed to get better results and there's trials and, and the dose escalation went up. And now with, man, with men with locally advanced, even high-grade prostate cancer, the outlook is pretty good. Although, uh, and, I, and I think the use of abibaterone or uh, enzalutamide uh, with uh, with uh, uh, with radiation is going to change the landscape even more. Uh, so obviously, we'd like to decrease the side effects. Using hormones for a prolonged period of time has makes things harder, or, or is, is morbid. And then, of course, there's side effects to radiation: proctitis, um, cystitis, short-term and uh, impotence, and some incontinence, mostly rectal injury, long-term. So there's a running battle with the urologist on what's a better treatment. And of course, if there's that much controversy, they're probably about equal. I mean, there's it, 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 today's Easter, so it borders on religious, right? Passed over to it. Border, these arguments border on religious on which is better. Personally, I think given the cost of everything I, I and, and the morbidity of surgery, I think radiation's a better treatment for most men. I could see a young man, say, 50 who could have nerve sparing is probably better with a nerve sparing procedure. Excuse me, it may be a large tumor, high grade, who probably is going to require post-operative radiotherapy and hormones might be better with it out. But in general, I think uh, radiation is a better treatment. It leads to a very interesting discussion on what's a better treatment because it's not only cure, it's side effects. It's, I know you're interested in cost, which isn't so much uh, to interest to a specific patient. So, so I think that's sort of a paradigm for how things have, have moved. I think intensity modulated radiotherapy, where the beam is, so this is really computer controlled radiotherapy, where the beam is, uh, the intensity is literally modulated, uh, and where the uh, uh, apertures move at the same time. So the beam can be much more easily shaped than it could in the old days. So, so with improved imaging and delivery, it's changed the landscape uh, to a degree in head and neck cancer, um, uh, uh, in lung cancer, in a variety of cancers. And uh, I think the, in general, the combination with chemotherapy for local control um, has been, uh, been a game changer. So platinum and head and neck cancer and cervix were the major benefits local control. Um, I can see uh, combinations in lung cancer with checkpoint inhibitors. I personally think will move the needle, I hope they move the needle considerably. And then there's alternatives to surgery, for example, in lung cancer um, with stereotactic body radiotherapy. So here we give very high doses to very confined volumes. And again, there's a running discussion in lung cancer as a patient better off with a surgery or what's called SBRT. And um, I, you know, I was just a visiting professor by Zoom at Hopkins. And I, we did, I did a clinical paper with the residents where there's a paper, I think it's in the Lancet on it. It's a one-arm trial on um, SBRT for lung cancer from MD Anderson. And they conclude it's not inferior. Now there's a lot of hoo-ha because they're, 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 um, definition of non-inferior is pretty loosey-goosey. So I said to the friend, well, what would you accept as residents? And, and you know, what, what would you guys accept? And they, um, 
it's interesting that they sort of didn't get it. And I said, well, you know, I, I wrote this paper a long time ago with Barbara McNeil and Steve Pauk, where it's called The Fallacy. It's in the New England Journal. It's called The Fallacy of the Five-Year Survival in Lung Cancer. So what we did, we asked young, uh, if you ask, we, we use this um, utility theory, which is a way people invest money. So somebody your age is going to buy more stocks right? Because you're more long-term and you're more risk-seeking. Somebody my age, you know, I don't want to buy ripe bananas, or I'm going to buy, I'm going to buy bonds. So, so it's true with patients too. Older patients want to take less of a risk for, for uh, guaranteed survival. Uh, the assumption here is surgery has some mortality. And of course, it's, it's involved with frailty, et cetera. So, so I think that the <clears throat> to date, the technological advances in radiotherapy have moved the needle. I think combination with systemic agents have moved the needle considerably, whether it's hormones or chemotherapy. <clears throat> Checkpoint's not quite there yet. Um, and there's a lot of controversy around that. I think that moves the needle. Um, and then um, I think uh, some uh, better imaging continues to improve it, whether it's say PSMA PET for metastatic disease and so forth. You know, it's hard, it's hard uh, to listen to this, Ralph, without thinking about the little exposure that medical students get to radiation oncology as a discipline before they have to make a decision. I actually taped an episode on pathology and I interviewed a pathologist from MD Anderson. And, and it, it's like the common theme. When you go through medical school, how, I mean, do, do you think they understand, medical students, do they actually understand the these nuances and these advanced radiation oncology so they know because I, I, when I was a medical student, uh, which was a long time ago, I don't think I even knew. I thought radiation oncology, you put somebody in an oven, like, you know, and you just uh, have like, I don't know. I mean. Well, we are the Rodney Dangerfield of medical specialists. The students have no, so first, you know, I always tell what I told these Hopkins residents, you're a doctor first, you're a general oncologist second, you're a radiation oncologist third. And uh, so, so the whole, so everybody should have some fundamental understanding of cancer, more or less, and at least understand what risk is, what risk benefit is, not just stick somebody on a clinical trial, which happens, and everybody's guilty of this. So I would say we have almost no exposure to the students. Um, I think medical schools aren't optimally organized. Internal medicine isn't optimally organized. It's everything, right? Half the faculty's internal medicine. But for example, we have more to do with oncology than oncology does with nephrology, or than oncology does with uh, neurology, or you know, it just. Uh, so, so I think some of it's male organization. I think we're, we're a small specialty. I also think that we haven't done a very good job of. Uh, so there's actually some really brilliant people, uh, but but because it's small and the probability of getting somebody really brilliant is pretty small. I think we haven't done a good job of selling it to the medical students or, or even saying, look, here's something you, you ought to consider. Not even to the medical oncologists who have a broad training in internal medicine, but actually, as I understand the training programs, it's really you're focused on, in a fellowship, at least in Chicago, I think they're focused on just a couple of diseases, right? Yeah. So if I ask a medical oncologist, tell me what a 3B cervix cancer is, most of them can't do it unless they do gynae. 
right? Yeah, no, they, they can't. And I think they study a little bit for boards and right. then after boards, it goes out the way. Right. And in fact, you, you're, you're penalized, not penalized, but you are discouraged from becoming a generalist. You really have yeah. to accept a specialized. But I think, I think for, for, for me is I still don't believe medical students understand radiation oncology and they want to have, they have to make a decision which residency to apply for. Yes. When they're a third year, fourth year medical student, and and that's why uh, I think it's there's a disservice to the specialty because there's very little known about it. Right. Also, I think the the mo is, and some of this, of course, is radiation oncology part that we're not real doctors. Uh, you know, in Europe, the the there's one sort of at least in Britain and I think in France, most. Um, cancer specialists are trained in both and then they do one or the other. But for example, I think the people who do the radiation for brain tumors give the Temidoc because we do the hormones now with prostate yeah. cancer. Yeah. I think there's been a fundamental mistake of radiation oncology in the United States not to adopt this. Um, one, because I think some of the advances will be systemic agents combined with radiation. And two, um, it, it, at least you're a doctor, right? I mean, just e even when we do brachytherapy, putting the patients in gynae as opposed to our, have our residents take call, it, it, it's, you know, we don't want to become medical oncologists or, you know, as I say, salt and water people. This is a mistake. But, but at least have presence on the wards. I, I, it's a mistake, a real mistake. And then the, my colleagues wonder why nobody respects radiation oncology. Well, this is why, because this is ingrained into the psyche of being a doctor, right? I do, I do, I respect, as long as I remain the quarterback, I'm okay. I'm just kidding. Yeah, yeah so well, no, no, I mean, but that's, you, you know, if, if somebody like I have very close friends with Everett folks, it's great. If he tells me something in head and neck cancer, this guy knows all, all aspects of it. And so if Everett tells me, I, boy, I listen to him. He's a, now is he smart, but I know he knows. Where there's other people, if they tell me something, I know they don't know what they're talking about. So yeah, they, you know, I mean, is, Everett is like this ASCO president. We got to listen to him for a couple of more months and then. Yes. Um, so. So I, I'm, I noted as you're talking about advances and changes in radiation oncology, you did not mention much about proton therapy, Ralph. Right. So, so I've been pretty outspoken about this. So protons for your listeners are charged particles that give up their energy and give a very nice, what's called a Bragg peak named after Sir Lawrence Bragg. So it looks great. However, the Bragg peak is usually pretty narrow. And so you either need to spoil it, that is spread it out, or you need to use multiple Bragg peaks. I'm way oversimplifying. So it looks great. And I think it's not like I'm against protons. I think like anything else, it needs to be tested. And finally, after 40 years, it's being tested sort of. So what happened is that of many for-profit centers but even at MD Anderson, it's run by a for in partnership with a for-profit organization. So this sort of undercuts its legitimacy, but not completely. Uh, and so what you see is ads that say, we're going to cure you with protons. So let's go back to the, so I would acknowledge that there are definitely people with rare tumors like chordomas against the spinal cord or, or children that would very likely benefit from protons, although there's no trials, but the populations are so small, they'll never be done. And if somebody could benefit, and we send patients for protons all the time, if we think that patient will benefit. 
I just don't think these are common enough to have more than one proton facility in every big city, tops, right? So the protoneers, as they call them, are advancing protons for prostate cancer, for uh, breast cancer, for lung cancer. So listen, maybe it's going to work, but my estimate is if the dose is the same, you're not going to have better outcome for tumor cure. Um, and maybe there'll be less complications, but if you really look at this so far, it's, it's not come out. I mean, it's a minor, uh, a, a minor advantage at best, and in some cases, it's actually worse because they're difficult to use and because of the biological effect of proton. So the study should have been a long, done a long time ago. It's very expensive to buy these, and it's expensive to operate them. So the question is, is the squeeze worth the juice? So I'm open to it being um, uh, better, but don't be charging insurance companies and patients a lot of money without uh, some benefit, because what's gonna happen is people who really need them in the future won't be able to get them because nobody's gonna pay for them. Uh, I, I but, think- but, but let, me, let me ask you this. I mean, you, you know, you and I know that payers, like insurance companies, are you know notorious for trying to deny payments that's why i get the peer-to-peer -peer and i mean so many times right so why are these there they pay for it like they actually do yeah, pay for I, it. I think it's got to do with the lobbies of the equipment manufacturers and to an extent i, I don't know this for a fact astro which is a radiotherapy organization a good organization my suspicion is that there's probably a lobby to get them paid for it because you're right i'm shot and i just saw on twitter actually that somebody got sued for denying protons for lung cancer. So this is crazy stuff. I mean, I, unless, you know, I don't know the individual case, I suppose it was growing into the vertebral body maybe, but it really, it, it doesn't make any sense to me that, um, that, that somebody could get sued for denying protons when there's absolutely no data it's better, either for decreased complications or increased cure rate in lung cancer. Nor is there likely to be any, I'm, I'm oh, so, so to, today in 2022, which which patient the, does Ralph send to? So we send that? most of the kids because there's no exit dose or, or if we're radiating the brain, it doesn't spread the dose around as much. So uh, that seems to me to be a good good bet that that'll be out. I, I it, it might not be better, but it, to me, it looks like it could be better. And I think it will be better. Because kids live a long time and they're going to develop second tumors and you don't want a lot of exit dose. The, the, the other one are, say, chordomas against the spinal cord or tumors in unusual locations where there's some uh, critical structure near a tumor and you need to deliver a high dose to the tumor. And those are individual cases, but we I have no trouble. If I think someone's going to benefit, I would send them for sure. sure but but do, do you have or do you need a prospective randomized control trial to demonstrate either superiority of proton therapy or lower morbidity? Absolutely, right. Especially in the big, you know, these one, these are one-offs, but I think in breast, lung, prostate, absolutely. This is these are big volume diseases. And to me, it's Looney Tunes not to do them. And I, I, in prostate, I don't see how it could possibly be better. In breast, left-sided breast, I theoretically it could be better with less of heart dose, but it'd take a long time to show it and certainly not for cure. And um, 
in lung cancer, maybe, but I don't think so. You know, you've got to account for um, organ movement. You know, if they if they use them to escalate the dose, where you could move the needle, that would make more sense to me. I, I don't understand why they give the same dose. In other words, if you give the same dose, you can't possibly increase cure unless it's magic, right? So aside from magic, I, I just don't see it. I think there's, there's an, and you mentioned there's a lot of, I mean, there are a lot of these centers, even in our state of Illinois. I mean, yes. kind of all over and Indiana close by and everything. And, right. and, and I wonder if some of this, um, is pushed by there's direct to consumer marketing, as you know. I mean, you go and see a billboard talking about proton therapy, and, and and patients do get impacted by by this, and um, it's very difficult to separate the signal from the noise with proton yeah. therapy. Well, I mean, it, but there's no evidence. In other words, this to me. So there was a National Academy symposium on technology outside of radiotherapy, outside of radiology. So they had me, I was one of the co-runners of it, right? So when they saw that, they, they basically Astro and the equipment manufacturers made sure they got their people on there. So the, the woman who ran said to me, look, you're biased, you do the surgery. So they, a guy, they, they did robotic versus open prostatectomy. So uh, the guy gets it's a very distinguished urologist, they're showing movies and they show outcome data, right? open versus robotic. And I said, I said, it looks like they're the same. And they go, oh no, the robotic's better. I go, well, put the slide up. And of course the outcome curves are superimposable. And maybe there's less, a half a day less hospital stay with the robotic. So that they got pissed off. And I said, listen, well, you know, so, but I think, so, so there's no evidence really that Da Vinci robot is better. The surgeons like it better. And I, and I don't even think they train people to do open prostatectomies or not. I mean, I, you know, I, that's a general statement, but the fact is it's been adopted without real evidence, right? I mean, not, there's no, I don't think there's a randomized trial on Da Vinci robot. I'm afraid the same thing could happen with protons. Now, there's in a lot of these smaller centers. So I'm big on the more you do, the better you get. And so in universities or large practices, it's sub radiation oncology subspecialized, which makes a lot of sense. So now you're going to have people running these centers with protons, which are much harder to use. And none of these places have outcome data on what I call RORT, regular old radiation. In other words, uh, I've said this on Twitter too. I'm not against private practice. It's great if it's big enough. It's got to be big enough so there's specialization. Even I'm uncomfortable in our own center. The university sort of foisted, I shouldn't say this, foisted these smaller practices off on us. And the people out there that have been in the department who agreed to do it are very good. But you need to do a lot of whatever you're doing. It's like that in it's like that in medical oncology. It's like that in surgery. It's like that in everything. So I think this is a fundamental flaw in American medical practice for something like this. And I think protons are going to exacerbate it because they're just harder to use. Yeah, you know when you talk about evidence, though, I mean, you know, we it's it's always challenging. Me and you have talked a little bit about this offline. It's 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 so hard to know how much evidence do you need for something and and the type of evidence um, how how many things you need for prospective rct uh, right. versus right i mean look we are hopefully emerging out of the covid-19 pandemic and you know over the past couple of years so much talk about well you need evidence for x y and z and and people fight with each other well i don't need evidence i need evidence 
The same applies here. I mean, Gamma Knife, Cyber Knife, SBRT, there is no large prospective randomized controlled trials. There's a lot of hodgepodge of things. And then you guys decide what's appropriate for somebody. So, so, so take me through as a, as a scientist, as a clinician, as a clinical trialist, how do you determine the level of evidence that you need and what to do? Because this came up to me in a paper that was published in Lancet Oncology several months ago, which really stirred a lot of debate on Twitter. And you were pretty animated uh, about the paper. But before we go ab about this paper specifically, just take me through how do you... How so do you for me, it seems some things you know are too rare or too small to do a trial on and you're sort of going by, you know, you're sort of winging it. I think otherwise you do, the best thing of course is a randomized prospective trial, but for these equipment things, generally they're not done one, for example, CyberKnife is cool. It's the world's most expensive, cool video game. It's a invented by Jan Adler, a neurosurgeon, and it's a swivel-headed uh, uh, beam a uh, swivel-headed apparatus. It's like a robot, and it, it, but there's no evidence it's better than anything else. It's just people like it, okay. It's a little more limited than a linear accelerator. Same thing with protons. So you, if you do the number needed to treat, you, you would need to have a huge trial in most diseases to show benefit. For example, in prostate cancer, you never could show benefit. I mean, Given the natural history of disease, the age of the patients, it just is, it's almost impossible, uh, which is why there's so many debates about radiotherapy versus surgery. It's very hard to show an advantage. Maybe you could in lung cancer on something like glioblastoma, where you could give a very high dose and not have uh, much benefit, you can't show an effect either. So, so I'm, I think if uh, the outcomes are equivalent, sure, you can use them, but I don't see charging a premium for them. And I think these claims that they're better are just not true. They're just not true. You can't prove it. In other words, it, you have to be able to show it to prove it. And I think, you know, the best, of course, is a randomized trial, but I think it'll never be done. There aren't enough cyber knives or in gamma knife. It has certain advantages for very, very teeny target volumes, but that's never been proven either. And I think there's just no reason to have one. I know people, have, if you have one, they use them. I mean, there's nothing wrong with it, but it's not necessarily better. The other thing is you require a stereotactic frame for gamma knife. You don't for most LINAC-based treatments in the, in the brain. So I, I you know... It's unprovable, but I, or, well, it's provable, but no one's ever going to do the trial. Yeah. Well, I mean, there are certain things I know that we couldn't answer everything in COVID-19 with our RCT, but there are certain things I actually did feel could have been done with millions of people being impacted. And I know this is not about COVID, but uh, one of the things I thought, like people talk about fourth dose right now, right? right. And I, I, I don't know. Like I feel like this is something that should be studied in an RCT because you can't you can't keep winging it right. every six months giving something. But yeah, this um, is a little different, though. In other words, these are actually small questions. So the big cancer questions are at least, hot, for example, I'm big on treating metastatic disease with the so-called oligometastasis. So this is another thing where uh, the common conception is cancer is all over. Well, it's not all over. Is, right? Yeah. So Hellman and I wrote this paper 25 years ago, and this is something I've been studying as well. 
Um, and but so that that is would really demand a randomized trial because that's being done. I mean, I'd love it because I get a lot of attention, but I think probably it'll work in some diseases and it won't work in others, and it depends on the efficacy of the systemic agents. That demands a randomized trial. The stuff about uh, cyberknife versus gamma, that's a small question to me. Yeah. I, I don't see this is. Yeah. This is not a big question. This is nonsense. And this is what kept radiotherapy or radiation oncology uh, down is this excessive. So we want to be as technologically elegant as we can, but we don't want to bring it to the point where we waste our resources asking stupid questions. And we've done a pretty good job of it. <laughs> well, so there was a paper published in Lancet Oncology, my friend. It actually was in August, was published August 4th, um, 2021, and the title of the paper is, and I'm reading it from here. Uh, actually, it was eventually, it was pre-EPUB uh, and then was in print on September 1st, 2021. Pan-cancer prediction of radiotherapy benefit using genomic adjusted radiation dose guard, a cohort-based pooled analysis. You went crazy on this one. What happened? So, so, so radiobiology, actually had its roots. It was done originally by people who had backgrounds in physics. And it has its roots in bacterial genetics. So you can predict from survival of mutant bacteria, this goes back to the 50s, you can construct what's called target theory. That is, you know DNA is the target, how many strand breaks do you get, what's lethal. So bacteria are pretty simple and it sort of works. So now you bring this up to mammalian cells. Now you've got histones and non-histone proteins and microRNAs and all kinds of, well, I guess bacteria do, but all kinds of complexity. So not so easy. Now you take tumors and you put them in a ball. Now you have cell-to-cell -cell contact. And now you put them in the host and you have immune system. So, so the idea that you, so intrinsic sensitivity, which I studied for years, is only one parameter, right? So so, uh, for example, we did a CRISPR screen that is a knockdown screen, an in vivo screen. And we, we haven't published this, but what we found in cells, the genes that govern survival after radiation are exactly the same genes you would predict, cell cycle, DNA repair, P53. If you put them in an immune-deprived mouse, but now they're in a, a ball, now it's cell-to-cell -cell contact genes, still some DNA repair genes. But if you put them in an immune-competent mouse, now it's, it's the immune contexture. This is not for immunotherapy. It's the immune contexture that determines whether the mice are cured or their tumors. So these kinds of models that take none of this into it, it's sort of, uh, it, it, it doesn't make any sense on its base. And they use these complicated mathematical concepts to say this is predictive. Now, I would believe it at least had some value. So the overwhelming determinant of, uh, uh, of curability is of course the kind of tumor, but it's tumor size by and large, it's somewhat great, but tumor size. So if they told me I can predict which T1 larynx cancers will fail, or I can predict which T1, T4 lung cancers will be cured, that is some, some, uh, some resonance to it. 
But these guys say, oh, well, you know, sort of ex cathedra, it, 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 it just contorted. It doesn't make any sense. And to an extent, it's dangerous if people start to use it. Now, maybe they got lucky. You know, it's the old thing about you have a thousand chimpanzees with a thousand typewriters and one of them will write Shakespeare. So that's possible. Right? I mean, I won't deny it, but, but it's nonsense, but it's possible. And that, so, so the danger is that people really believe this stuff and they start to use it or that they, you know, it, it, because even the much more precise test for uh, the decipher test, th these are, uh, you know, helpful, but they're not as black and white as, you know, I mean, it's a sliding scale, right? It's not in, they're mostly cell cycle genes. I mean, it's all believable in prostate and breast here. It's completely unbelievable. I mean, and it's transparent. It makes sense. It grows faster you do worse. Here, it makes no sense to me. And they, they don't like my commenting on it, but it's, I think, so. So, so, so the, the, I mean, the paper was trying to create a predictive model, right? Um, and you just think the model was not, work, or did not. No, it's a model. In other words, I don't think you can model this. You can't have a model unless you know all the, or most of the parameters. So I think they're modeling intrinsic sensitivity to radiation based on in vitro survival curves. And what I'm saying is in vivo, it completely loses its resonance. And once you put it in with a host immune system, good or bad, it really doesn't have any resonance. So their assumptions are fundamentally wrong. Plus there's difference in clonality. So within a tumor, you have some tumor cells that go on and they're dangerous. And you have some that terminally divide and they're dead. And you have, you know, you, and you have everything in between. And so this takes none of that into account. That's why tumor size is probably the best sur surrogate for curability. Just like with chemotherapy, adjuvant treatment generally works better than uh, if you've got wall-to-wall -wall cancer. So is it, is it, you think, just, I mean, the paper, like just taking this as an example, were the peer reviewers uh, not, um, you know, how, how did the paper like this? That, I have no idea. I, I I have no idea. I just don't can't even. You know, it's a, you send in enough papers. You could, uh, I've snuck a few of mine through. You just don't know. <laughs> you know, I I think I do think though. Um, one of the advantages of social media, that's my own opinion, is there's more peer reviews beyond the three peer reviewers that let yeah. the in. And I, I wonder for a paper like this, did you think about writing letter to the editor? No. Well, you know, the guy who wrote it, Black uh, name, he he actually sent me a text. He said I was hurting him professionally and I didn't want to do that. I, you know, it's, it's fun as long as it doesn't hurt somebody. That, yeah. that, that, there, I just wouldn't do that. That's a bad thing yeah. to do. No, no, of course not. I, 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 it just, you know, when somebody asked me like this, it just sets up because I think it makes us look like fools to be perfectly. There's enough crazy stuff out there. I think radiation oncology, we can't afford to look greedy like we're not doctors or look foolish more than other specialties, I think. Yeah. 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 So um, so what what's maybe just a, a little bit into how, how do you see the field of radiation oncology evolving in, in, in the next few years? Where, so, where, what's, what, what, what excites you that's coming down the pike about radiation? So I think a couple of things. One is this idea you can treat metastatic disease either with stereotactic radiotherapy that is high dose with better imaging and, and uh, it probably in combination with systemic agents. So it could be used one of two ways. So this paper I wrote with Sam Hellman, who's just the, one of the most determinative people ever in oncology, forget about radiation oncology, because that cancer isn't overall all over all the time. 
that you can image it and you can treat it. And that even if patients are treated with systemic agents, we can ablate the resistant clones. Because if you look at the data, almost all patients except lymphomas, that's a uh, uh, lymphoma and leukemia are outliers. The <laughs> hematologists are smarter than we are. Is that um, even with the TK inhibitors, tumor cells become resistant. So can you either upfront by treating all the sites of disease, reduce the, the uh, burden, so you don't get resistance, or can you clean them up at the end? Or in the case of something like PSMA, can you actually ablate metastatic disease with high doses? So this is very exciting, and I think this is evolving. And I think, as I say, I know all the trials won't be positive. And it's it sort of, uh, when Sam and I wrote the paper, it's interesting, he sent it, we sent it to Journal of Clinical Oncology, three reviewers read it, rejected it, and he called George Canellis, a famous guy, and he yelled at him, and so George publishes an editorial, but everybody thought it was such a bad idea. I backed off for a couple of years, and then we did a phase one, and I had done a lot of lab stuff on this, and I, I didn't mention that. And then uh, it looks like it, it looks like this. So the hypothesis is it's a spectrum of disease. Metastasis is a spectrum like everything else. And I, that's probably right. Whether ablating sites really is going to help, that's open to much more question. But the idea is when we stage patients, we should do it not only when, when we do personalized medicine, not only should we be looking for targets, but we should be looking for determinants of spread or how far it spread. And there's a great paper by a woman, Seema Tarajic, that was in cell or cancer cell from Tracer X in Great Britain. And she showed actually, I almost cried because she quoted our paper. It's the first time it was cited in anything but some, you know. And what she shows in renal cell cancer that there are papers, with, there are, are renal cell cancers that actually could be cured with surgery or stereotactic radiotherapy, a minority, of course. And they had a linear evolution, whereas uh, uh, patients who got early metastasis had punctate evolution. So, so this I find very exciting. And grafted onto this are new but I hope will be new imaging and treatment techniques with radionuclides. So this is another fundamental mistake is, so I always say for nuclear radionuclide therapy, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm certified, but not qualified. So <laughs> radiation oncology has let this go. Up till now, it hasn't been a big deal. I think this will be a really big deal and it'll be a really big deal for two reasons. One is that we can identify metastatic disease and treat it with external radiation. And two, I think that these radionuclides will add substantially um, in the long run to the treatment of metastatic disease. So I find this whole area very intriguing. Then you put it in with the improvements in TK inhibitors and immuno-oncology. I think uh, to, to an extent, successful adjuvant therapy in breast cancer opened the door for breast conservation. Uh, and I think um, I, I, I think the same things are going to happen. So I'm very excited about it. I know that you obviously have done a lot with textbooks and written and edited and 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 part of this. But have you have you thought about writing a book to the public about radiation therapy and the history? I mean, you just listening to you, the, the perspective that you have over 40 years almost of evolution of a discipline that I can tell you a lot of people, including medical professionals, I mean, honestly know very little about. Um, and uh, I, uh, when I was a fellowship program director back in my day, I actually made sure that my fellows 
do I worked out with the radiation oncology department that the fellow spent more time than was required by the ACGME, frankly, because I felt they they had no clue what actually happens there. And 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 by by large, it was very popular that they just got to know something that they had no idea what, what goes on. So I guess when you think about the history of radiation oncology and the discipline, have you thought about writing a book? About well, I did, you know, so there are these books that are pretty thorough. So I don't know if you've ever read The Court of the Red Czar by Simon Sebag Montefiore. He's actually, his brother or his nephew or something's on our Twitter feed. He's a radiation oncologist in Great Britain. So, so he writes, so this is about Stalin's personal life. So Stalin, I'm sure your listeners are the greatest mass murderer of all time, up there with Hitler and Genghis Khan. This guy was nuts, right? So, so, but it's so entertaining um, that uh, that you can really learn a lot of history. Well, radiation oncology had some real rogues that nobody talks about. Right. So I'm a little. It's a. I'm a little. It's hard to prove, you know. I mean, I, it would take it would take a lot of time, but it would be very interesting to do this. I think the early people really, really swam against the stream. My impression is so. For example, Coutard in France, who really was the first one. You know, people give Madame Curie credit, but it was really Coutard who did fractionated radiation. Uh, he he really figured this out. And then there's a woman who never gets credit called M. Vera Peters. Vera Peters was a Canadian radiation oncologist at the Princess Margaret. And Dr. Peters, she did, um, she was really the first one or on a large scale to do extended field radiotherapy for Hodgkin's disease. And if you go back and read it, there were people who did it before, but she and Eric Eason really pushed this. And she had a very large series. And of course, Henry Kaplan at Stanford grabbed all the credit. Uh, you know, she was sort of a retiring person. And then she also did breast conservation without taking out the lump. She did a match paranalysis, published it in JAMA, showed the survival of 15 years was the same. And, you know, she, she did a lot. I mean, really did a lot. Gets absolutely no credit. So there's a lot of things. Sam Hellman, I think, these residents didn't know who he was. This guy was the determinative person in radiation oncology. He is absolutely brilliant. He, uh, he did breast conservation. You know, he had the bully pulpit at Harvard and published, a, you know, just a retrospective analysis, but said, look, at least this is possible, right? And um, he did stem cells uh, before, stem before, not before Tillon McCullough, but he did stem cells. And he also did computer controlled radiotherapy, but the computing at the time wasn't good enough. So he had to move the couch and it didn't, didn't quite work out. And then Henry Kaplan, of course, was determinative. So yeah, I thought, but he, he apparently, there's a book about, apparently he wasn't a very nice guy. And just like Fletcher at MD Anderson, he is crazy. I know him, he's completely crazy. But so the answer is, yeah, I have thought of it. The, the other famous oncologist I got to know, were Tom, I wrote a book with Tom Fry and Jim Holland. So I knew Tom from Boston, who he was very good to me and very helpful in my career. And some of my therapeutic adventurism I got from Tom, because Tom used to say, if you don't kill 10% in the clinical trial, you're not being aggressive enough. Now I'm not quite there. But that was, and, and Holland was absolutely, uh, you know, I didn't like him at first. It, he, he was an acquired taste, but such, such a smart guy. And the same with Don Keefe at the Farber, really yeah. a close personal friend, uh, 
I, I would I would say it's something honestly to consider just because I think there's a lot there to it would be a fun read to be honest uh, you know uh, of course you have to be a good writer Ralph and I don't yeah. know yeah to, well I know that writing prose is a little different than writing dry science yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but you know one of your radiation oncologists was a like was an EPA commissioner or something I mean it's at some point oh uh, yeah uh, yeah oh Stephen Stephen Hunt. Hunt. nice guy. Uh, I won't comment on his politics. I, I don't know him very. I just know him to say hello to him. But everybody I know says he's a nice guy, a smart guy. But you really have to, in, in something like COVID, you need a bet. You got to know what you're doing. This is like me commenting on COVID. This is crazy. This I, is I have really to, I got to tell you, I don't know if anybody knows at this point what they're doing. I think it's, uh, you but, know. But if your background's in really, I mean, it should be an infectious disease if yeah. you're going to do that, right? That, that's. Any, any, anything else I needed to, I mean, there's so much to ask, but at the same time, I want to be very respectful of your time. That's all right. Uh, I think really what I gave you for the future of radiation oncology is my aspirational stuff about doing metastatic disease, even doing some mild drugs, you know, as, as it relates to really having inpatient beds, really moving the field in that way and developing a cadre of young investigators who get support. I think that's, I hope it happens. I think the odds are against it just by the way society's evolved, by the way the specialties was 10 years ago, very popular, much less popular. And I suspect it's, you know, um, it's got to do with the, unfortunately with the people who are sort of running the show. Um, and, uh, I, you know, it's a hard, it's, it's a, that's a hard thing to change. I have to say though, Astro in general has better locations than Asco. Asco is always. <laughs> I mean, right. I'm planning on going to next Astro. I, I will say Astro Astro's really upgraded their meetings. They've done, I'd say, in the past 10 years, a much better job, much more scientific, much more data-driven. Um, but Asco's got huge clout. I mean, you know. Which uh, which Asco award did we give you, Ralph? I mean, Karnowski. Yeah. So tell, uh, do you mind tell us a little bit about how? how that felt and, and what I felt, listen, this is a great, I, so I didn't know it was the top prize. So that was obviously enormously flattering. And I felt like I was very fortunate, probably a little undeserving. Um, but, you know, cause you look at the people who have wanted to really move the needle. So I hope the oligomets will move the needle, you know, and well, I think you have, you have, see who said the oncologists don't like radiation oncology yeah, right. even gave you an award. Yeah. So the only two, the only other radiation oncology one was my, my mentor, Sam Hellman. So that was very special. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah I'm not that popular to tell you the truth, the radiation oncologist. So I shouldn't say this, but I'd never gotten the gold medal of Astro, probably because I didn't go to a meeting for 20 years. And so, oh. so, but then when I won the Karnowski, all of a sudden I got the gold medal. So that was. <laughs> so what's, what, what, do uh, what's next for you? Are you thinking of slowing down a little bit? What's going on? Uh, I like what I'm doing. You know, my wife wants me to slow, but I, I'll tell you the truth. I am compelled by the science. I'm, I'm truthfully compelled by the tragedy of cancer. You know, you know, this is, I, I, you, you had a very moving article in JCO on your interaction with the patient. This is, I mean, I really admire you for writing it down and you wrote it in a really compelling way, but this is terrible. I mean, you know, when I go through the cases on Friday, I just, you want to kill yourself. You just wonder, 
how, how this happened. I mean, you know how it happened, but I mean, you just, it's as a human being. So, so that really compels me. Plus I'm interested. Plus I don't have many hobbies. So <laughs> I got my kids and my grandkids. So, so, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's either that or watch baseball. They don't even play golf. Do you have any, any, any of your kids are in medicine? Yes. Our oldest is a psychiatrist. And, you know, it's funny when your kid's a psychiatrist, this is the same kid, you know, you just, you wonder, because now at dinner parties, you know, people look over to him for wisdom. You gotta be careful. You, like you, gotta, you gotta be careful what you say. Every word he's, wa he's watching. Yes. yes. He's and, uh, the fiance of our youngest is, he, he, he has an MBA, but she's a, doing a fellowship in pulmonary medicine. So maybe she'll bail me out one day. Yeah. <laughs> Look, this has been such a pleasure to to be with you. I, I, I can't thank you enough, really, uh, Ralph. This was amazing. I listen. I really appreciate it, and thank you. I'm very flattered you'd want to talk to me, and I'm gonna. I, I love your tweets, and I love your articles, and I'm gonna uh, dial in now that I know it's on YouTube. Absolutely. All right. Thank you so much, Shadi. I appreciate it very much. Okay, folks, thank you so much for listening. I appreciate your loyalty. If you uh, want to get a t-shirt, one of the famous healthcare unfiltered t-shirts, you need to direct message me on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan or visit my website at www.shadinabhan.com. You also need to let me know how I'm doing. You could share all of your thoughts, your ideas, and let me know where the opportunity is to improve. Before I let you go, I want to thank my guest, Ralph Weigzelbaum, for taking time and spending this time with me. We're actually taping this episode on Passover and on Easter weekend. So he took time of a holiday weekend to be with us. And for that, I'm forever grateful. I know that Ralph would appreciate this quote from Socrates. So hopefully, Ralph, you're still listening to this as we finish the episode. And one of the things that Socrates has said, and I'll leave you at that before I let you go, the only true wisdom is in knowing you know nothing. Socrates has once said, the only true wisdom is in knowing you know nothing. Until next time, take care.